This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. One piece of advice regularly handed to budding filmmakers is who's your target audience? Who's your film aimed at? The more you know that, the more directly and profitably you can aim your movie. But in fact, you don't just want that target audience to come to your movie. You want everyone. This is a story of two men who run. Not to run, but to prove something to the world. They will sacrifice anything to achieve their goals, except their honour. Case in point, an 80s film called Chariots of Fire. The target audience, I suppose, was sports historians obsessed by the Olympic Games of the early 20th century. Both of them. But the film was really about two fascinating characters overcoming impossible odds. And the subsequent box office figures and four Oscars indicate they broke out of the sports movie ghetto pretty successfully. Let me make this easy for you. You will bring me what I need. Or everything you call a life will end. Maybe the equivalent of sports audiences these days are comic book fans constantly wittering over statistics and minutiae. And right now they seem to be the only ones getting excited about the current crop of films from the Marvel Comics and DC stables. But it wasn't always so. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. Wow. It is my curse. Who are you? Who am I? Spider-Man. The first billion-dollar comic book movie, I'm told, was Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 20 years ago. And the secret of its success was, while it took the source material more seriously than usual, it didn't assume the rest of us did. Sam had the decency to set about persuading us. Peter, may I introduce my father, Norman Osborn? Great honour to meet you, sir. Harry tells me you're quite the science whiz. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. For a start, Spider-Man cast properly. Not just stunt casting with famous faces, but actual actors given actual characters to play. Tobey Maguire, Willem Dafoe, Cliff Robertson and Rosemary Harris. And when Iron Man took up the challenge a few years later, it did the same thing. Tony Stark. Now you work for me. What are you building, Stark? Knowing that only comic book tragics had ever heard of Tony Stark, Pepper Potts, Rhodey Rhodes and Obadiah Stane, director John Favreau employed the sort of cast you'd expect to see in a Coen Brothers movie. Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Jeff Bridges and Paul Bettany. Your eyes are red. Your tears for your long lost boss. Tears of joy. I hate job hunting. Yeah, vacation's over. Welcome home, sir. Put up the skin of wind. What happened over there? I have my eyes open. I want to protect the people. I put in harm's way. In other words, they aimed well outside their target audience, knowing that the Iron Man fans were going to come anyway. Well, this week I was made aware of how hard you need to work to reach that bigger audience when I saw two previews of coming attractions. And what does he want? Revenge. 
accepted Ethan. You've lost this one. What's done is done. What's done is done. When we say it's done. If ever there was someone you'd think could take it easy and sleepwalk his way to another big hit, it's the biggest star in the world, Tom Cruise. But the reason Tom's as big as he is, is he'll never just phone it in. His new film is the next Mission Impossible, which he also produced. I've lost count of how many Missions Impossible there have been now, and I suspect Tom has too. The next one is called Dead Reckoning Part 1, featuring stunts, action and plenty of Tom. But look at the cast he's brought in to help. We knew that someday our luck would run out. This is no longer a mission. This is a Dead Reckoning Apart from the usual suspects, Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames and new boys Carrie Elways and Mark Gattis, Dead Reckoning boasts a cast of female stars that would make James Bond green with envy. Apart from the talented Rebecca Ferguson and Hayley Atwell, there's Indira Varma from Game of Thrones and Oscar nominee Vanessa Kirby. But Tom's got competition. You will never be able to break my family. Ooh. Never accept death. When suffering is over. Vin Diesel's Fast and Furious series has long outgrown its petrol head B-movie beginnings. First, he had the bright idea of grafting onto the original blueprint of endless car races and car chases the concept of family. If you have a drink every time Dom Toretti says family in the upcoming Fast X, you'll be paralytic by the end of Act One. But again, look who he's got on board in the new film. Dominic Toretto. My future. My family. You stole that from me. Replacing the late Paul Walker and the departed Dwayne Johnson are the stalwart Jason Statham, John Saner and the popular Jason Momoa. But behind them are not one but four Oscar-winning women. Helen Mirren, Rita Marino, Brie Larson and Charlize Theron. Fast X even throws in a Grammy winner, Cardi B. I mean, even if you have no interest in muscle cars, there's at least something to look at. He's coming for you with everything. One of us might not come back from this, but we have to fight. What's the plan, Dom? I'm not sure anymore. Well, this week, three films, each with a specific target audience. So how well do they reach out for a wider one? Redemption of a Rogue is a little Irish film that was popular at home despite its minuscule budget. And the fourth John Wick film once again reduces its plot to the barest of essentials. You're going to die. Maybe not. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. But first, a little Kiwi comedy that's created the biggest buzz of the year so far. It's called Red, White and Brass. There's only six weeks till Tonga take on France at the Rugby World Cup. Maka, what have you done to my house? Surprise, my man! The title, Red, White and Brass, says it all for its target audience, the people of and from the island kingdom of Tonga. 
The flag of Tonga, the rest of us discovered, is entirely made up of the colours red and white. The brass is connected to another event well known to all true Tongans when their rugby team took on the world in the 2011 Rugby World Cup. We've got to show our pride to the world. Can we get some tickets to the game, please? You really should have lined up yesterday like everyone else. Red, white and brass is the brainchild of Nua Fanau, based on, as they say, real-life events. Originally, Nua's intention was to create a totally fictional feel-good comedy, until he was persuaded that the story of how he blagged his way into free tickets to the Tonga-France match was hilarious enough. The two leads are Maka, a star-making performance by first-timer J.P. Foliaki as a lovable chancer with a million schemes, and his cousin Veni, Demetrius Schuster-Koloa-Matangi, a long way from his role in TV series The Panthers. Here he plays a middle-class chap out of touch with his Tongan heritage. All we need to do is learn one song and march it one straight line. Has the boy ever let you down? Uh, constantly. Having tried and failed to get tickets to the match, Maka has a bright idea to claim he leads a marching brass band and thus wangle a starring role in the Wellington City Council opening entertainment show. The brass band, needless to say, is totally fictional and Maka also needs to get permission from his clergyman father. The City Council is putting together some entertainment for the Rugby World Cup. There's still a way we can get tickets. We've got a marching band and we could perform at the game. Ignore my son, he's an idiot. One thing non-Tongans learn quickly in red, white and brass is how much young Tongans are under the thumb of dad and mum, in this case both played by Nua Fanau's own parents. He says that the reason he brought in director Damon Fepoliai was because they wouldn't take directions from him. You guys do know that no one here can play an instrument. How hard can it be? We don't even have any instruments though. Is this supposed to be a brass band or a plastic band? This is Tongan ingenuity at its finest. So now Maka has to put together a brass band in just four weeks. I saw the Wellington premiere of Red, White and Brass at an enthusiastically full embassy theatre. Everyone had the world's greatest time. They were dressed to the nines. They opened the screening with a prayer and a hymn that made everyone else's hair stand on end. Well, even if you guys do suck, at least we'll still get to watch the game. It's not just about getting tickets to the game. It's about the whole world seeing what Don can do, man. What I'm saying is that nobody was remotely fussed about plausibility. The idea that a dozen beginners could not only learn marching moves in a month, but learn to play trumpets, trombones, snare drums and tubers from scratch. He and his band can make us all proud. Well done, everyone. To Nua Fanau's credit, he put a bit of thought into this. He adds a couple of actual musicians into the mix, including Cousin Venny, who'd kept his trumpeting skills a bit quiet at the start. He also contrives a masterclass at the local school, run by, why not, children's TV favourite Susie Cato. <coughs> Good. You think you can do better? <coughs> All right, thanks, Bonnie. 
I know the opening caption assured me that the story of Red, White and Brass really did happen. In fact, at the end of the screening, we were regaled by the actual brass band themselves. But I found it hard to believe it happened quite like this. No matter, the story weaves its way through triumphs and adversities until it reaches the undeniably true punchline, one known by every Tongan rugby fan, the Men in Red's fairy tale ending. How far we came already. We will not be embarrassed in front of everyone. The film's major strength is its good nature. It may be aimed predominantly at a Tongan family audience, but it's smart enough to appeal to families in general. I suspect the oldest and youngest members of the family trip to Red, White and Brass will enjoy it the most. <laughs> For me, the most admirable thing about the film was how hard the cast and crew have worked to let people know it's on. For three weeks before it was released, I was hearing so much talk about Red, White and Brass, all positive, all from people fully intending to go. Now that's targeting you can't buy. Hello, guys. How's the rehearsals going? It's it on my trumpet! This band sucks. There's a new Irish film in cinemas coming on the back of quite a few others, The Quiet Girl, After Sun and the BAFTA-winning Banshees of Inish Sharon. Curiously, I'm told Redemption of a Rogue was greeted more enthusiastically at home than any of them, possibly because it's more Irish than the rest. Jimmy Collin. I guess you could say he was also tired of the old living. Jimmy had to return home to face his demons. David? Redemption of a Rogue opens as our leading character, Jimmy, it's a little much to call him our hero, perhaps, returns home to the village of Ballyluff, County Cavan, after seven years. He's back to see his brother Damien and his dying dad. There's a touching deathbed scene. To earn his salvation. Sorry for never getting in touch, except for that time for the bail money. That money wasn't for bail money. That was for booze, Dad. And prostitutes, Dad. And crystal meth. Dad? Well, I say touching. Dad dies furious, but no matter. Damien and Jimmy arrange the funeral on an appropriately wet, miserable afternoon. But there's a snag. Dad's lawyer arrives with bad news. Your father has a serious condition. In his will, it demands, under no circumstances, is to be buried when it is raining. When's it going to stop raining? Dad's will forbids a funeral if it's raining. And the rain looks well established. In fact, it looks like it may never stop raining. This is a matter of concern, not just for the brothers, but for the whole village. Thanks a million for coming out today. You've been great. Funeral's off, essentially. We'll let you know when it's back on, OK? So... Yes, Hello. yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we still going to get the sandwiches up in the hotel after? No. Ah. Well, that was clearly the original idea behind Redemption of a Rogue. What if a plague of biblical proportions was to strike a village in the middle of Ireland? Because it's not just a matter of rain. The children of Ballyluff all stop talking. Next, there's likely to be disease, frogs, flies, the whole thing. So where to from here? A story like this needs more than one narrator. 
The powers that be, or should I say the powers that pee, are still pissing down on Ballyloft here in Cavan. A tale of a great deluge falls into my mind. A tale from the gutter. Which is what it gets. There's the actual narrator, Pat McCabe, who also doubles as a blues musician. And there's the jokey radio DJ, played by writer-director Philip Doherty himself. You get the idea that every expense has been spared in this little movie. But even in the sewers of the world, all humans have a craving for life. That blues musician thing. Jimmy pops down to the pub after a few days of no funeral and plenty of rain to discover it's been invaded by a whole lot of ageing musicians from all over the country. What's going on? Is this some sort of parable or something? Where are all these musicians from? We travel from the bottom, from the bottom of society to sing the blues. I know many of us had rather similar feelings when we were halfway through the rather more important Banshees of Inner Sharon. But for some reason this seems to be more so, partly because you get the feeling that your man Philip Doherty and his loyal buddy Aaron Monaghan, who plays Jimmy, are making this up as they go along. Why specifically this shit on? I said I'm going to the saddest town... Saddest town in the whole world to pour out my pain. Pour out my pain in a place where it rains, rains, rains for all eternity. Still, that's a time-honoured Irish method of storytelling, and at least it's not boring. You wonder when the church will make an appearance in the plot, and I can assure you, you won't be waiting long. Jimmy pops into a local church after a few drops of the hard stuff and is surprised when the Virgin Mary strikes up a conversation. It's been 40 days of perpetual rain. How can I end this? Answer me, you fraud! Jimmy, have you got any facts? Of only Rollies. Well, say what you like about Redemption of a Rogue, you can't deny it's the first time you've ever heard Jesus' mother say the line, got any fags. It's about now that Jimmy runs into another significant character, the local loose woman, Masha, short for Magdalene, who offers her own redemption. Love is the only thing that can heal, Jimmy. You know, the cure to pain is pleasure. It's a long, rambling, boozy tale, in other words, the sort of story you'd expect from the likes of other Irish storytellers like James Joyce, Samuel Beckett and Shane McGowan. At its heart is the blackest of comedy. Jimmy tends to pass out and dream of nooses, cloaked in a drunken take on redemption. Our town is dying. You need to bury him and end this plague once and for all. I think I know how to stop the rent. Come. But over that is another cloak of a typically Irish version of a likeable romantic comedy. Would it help to be Irish to fully enjoy Redemption of a Rogue? I'd say it would be essential. Down, down, I'll take you down. From the cradle to the grave, from your cloak to your crown. Swinging by a rope, you're hanging from a tree. Sexual confession will set you free.
the success of the John Wick series, where Keanu Reeves plays a man seeking more revenge for the death of a dog than anyone in the history of cinema, is both surprising and slightly depressing. In the past, action movies at least paid lip service to plot, motivation and plausibility. John Wick is almost entirely stunts. Many try, many die, Get it bloody. Well, this is hardly surprising. John Wick's two directors, David Leach and Chad Stahelski, are both top stuntmen. The three writers have only made action martial arts movies, and of course Keanu's made his fair share of those too. I want you to find your peace. But a good death only comes after a good life. In the latest John Wick, this one boasts a subtitle for a change, even if it is only Chapter 4. Our hero continues his battle against the sinister table. It's seemingly endless supply of soldiers, all armed to the teeth, and the challenge to better the last movie's body count. In the world of John Wick, shall we call it the Wikiverse, if you take up arms against Wick, you will be shot repeatedly. You and I left a good life behind a long time ago, my friend. Curiously, it takes several shots to kill someone in the Wikiverse. In fact, sometimes even then, I mean, the mustachioed leading soldier in Chapter 4 was killed several times, I thought, before he took his final, final bow. Mr. Moustache was working for the actual villain, the sinister, or at least French, Marquis. A new day is dawning. New ideas, new rules, new management. We've known each other since we were nine. Who is this? The Marquis de Gramont. Nice to see Ian McShane playing Wick's friend Winston, providing a certain amount of exposition. Not that the John Wick movies need much in the way of exposition. Also along for the ride, playing a character called the Bowery King, is Keanu's old Matrix colleague, Lawrence Fishburne. This hit goes out to you, Mr Wick. Woke up this morning. 42 regular, wasn't it? Yeah. And so it begins. There's some significance in the suit Mr Bowery hands Wick, though I didn't spot it at the time. It seems the suit has a certain amount of bulletproofing built into it. And this explains why every time John Wick walks into another hail of bullets, he protects himself by clutching the lapel so most of them bounce off. If only his opponents had such a helpful tailor. man has to look his best when it's time to get married. Or buried. I'm going to need a gun. Goodbye, my friend. It's hard to die. But there's no question of that. They may attack in dozens, but the end result is always the same. John Wick manages to bump them all off in endlessly imaginative ways. As someone occasionally says, there can be only one. No one. Not even you. Can kill everyone. This is a quote from another film with a daunting body count. Back in the days of straight-to-video, there was a movie called The Highlander, which boasted that only one crack, often intoned by Clancy Brown. 
Brown pops up in this film to do a similar job. Under the old laws, only one can survive. Failure to meet at sunrise. Will result in execution. Clancy Brown showing how to deliver exposition. The story, or at least the narrative of Chapter 4, involves the Marquis employed by the table to sick his hundreds of minions onto Wick. The arms bill alone must run into the millions in revenge for all the anti-table activities in Chapters 1 through 3. You want to kill him? I want to kill him. (laughs) I'm going to kill you. Complicating matters, the Marquis calls on the services of a blind Chinese assassin called Kane, also a chap called Nobody. Both of these are old friends of Wick, by the way. But business is business, there can be only one, you know how it is. If you win, the table will honour its word. We'll have your freedom. Nobody, interestingly, has a dog. In fact, in the Wikiverse, having a dog counts as characterisation. But it's also a nod, of course, to the first movie, which, you may remember, kicked off when Wick's own dog ceased to be. Saying goodbyes? Saying hello. You think your wife can hear you? No. And why bother? John Wick has also revived the cool one-liner, which used to be a staple of all those action movies of the past. I suspect Keanu may have written these himself, since the rest of the writer's room has been busy devising endless new stunts. The stunts, incidentally, are undeniably pretty cool. The only way John Wick will ever have freedom and peace is in death. Yeah, not really. So, is this the end of John Wick? All the signs are that it is, but if blockbusters have taught us anything, it's that nobody's so dead they can't be revived if the money's right. Unless they're a minion, of course, about two or three hundred by my count in Chapter 4. And on that tribute to some sort of record, it's time to go. I'm Sabi Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.